Welcome to Jib Jab, the Laws of War podcast. My name is Craig Martin, and I'm a professor of law at Washburn University School of Law. This podcast seeks to explore and explain various perspectives on the different legal regimes that govern the use of force and armed conflict, what I loosely and collectively call the laws of war. It's a podcast that hopes to provide conversations on hot topics and debates that will be of interest to experts in the field, but also to help make these areas of law and policy more intelligible and accessible to the non-expert. Because in my view, decisions about the use of force and armed conflict are among the most important that any government can make. And an understanding of the relevant legal regimes is essential to assessing such decisions and to holding governments accountable. So this podcast hopes to contribute to improving the public discourse on these issues. And if you're finding the podcast enjoyable or helpful, please do spread the word to your friends, colleagues, students, or indeed members of the media and other shapers of the public discourse. So our guest today is Professor Federica Pado from Cambridge University in England. She's best known for her work in the law of state responsibility, and she's the author of Justifications and Excuse in International Law, Concept and Theory of General Defenses. But she's also brought this expertise on the law of state responsibility and a deep understanding of defenses and excuses to bear on the use of force and the law of armed conflict. More importantly, at least for my research, has been her work on the scope of self-defense in the so-called circumstances precluding wrongfulness in the ILC articles on state responsibility. We'll talk about that earlier work later in today's episode. But our primary focus is on a very recent article of Federica's, indeed, I think it was published just days ago after we'd had our conversation, called Military Assistance on Request and General Reasons Against Force, Consent as a Justification for the Use of Force. And it explores the theoretical foundation of consent to the use of force and why it's important that we understand this correctly. So just to set the stage, everyone will recall that there is a general prohibition against the use of force in Article 2.4 of the UN Charter. And the standard view is that there are two exceptions to this prohibition, the use of force for collective security authorized by the UN Security Council pursuant to Article 42 of the Charter, and the use of force in self-defense as authorized by Article 51 of the Charter. But everyone also agrees that a use of force with consent of the state in which the force is being used is not a violation of the prohibition. So when the French used force against non-state armed groups in Mali, for example, with the consent of the government of Mali, everyone agrees that this is no violation of Article 2.4. But why is this? The language of the prohibition itself does not prohibit only non-consensual use of force. And there's no other provision that provides consent as a justification for the use of force. So where does this consent exception come from? And should we understand it to be part of the definition of the prohibition itself, that is, intrinsic to the prohibition? Or should we consider it as a separate and extrinsic defense or justification? So as you will discover, this is an important question with some important practical and substantive implications. But to get there, we do have to wade into the weeds of the theory of defenses, exceptions, and justifications, but I promise you it's worth the trek. And it may change how you think about the use of force, whether the prohibition is a use Kogan's norm, and what level of evidence is required to justify consent. Finally, Towards the end of the episode, we do spend some time talking about Federica's earlier work on Article 21 of the Articles of State Responsibility, which if you haven't read, I promise you it will likely change how you understand self-defense as a circumstance precluding wrongfulness. But also, there's an interesting story here about the process of how the ideas of scholars evolve and develop over time. So with that, I bring you Federica Padieu. Federica Padeu, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for being with us. 
Uh, thanks for having me. And as you know, before we dive into the substance, I've been asking all our guests to, to share something about themselves that's a little off the wall or something your colleagues might not know about you. So what can you tell us? Um, I like making ice cream <laughs> in my spare time. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I've gotten quite into it during lockdown. People were baking and I was making gelato. Um, so yeah, I read a lot about recipes and how to make them and try few recipes a couple of times a week <laughs> i'm not sure how i'm going to relate that to your scholarship but we can try <laughs> i'm not sure you can other than you know it makes yeah it's just it gets me completely off my scholarship that's why i do well but you were also telling me before we got started and i'm, I'm sure um, some of our listeners will not know where you're from i mean it's an interesting backstory so maybe you could share that as well yes yeah, sure um i i was born and grew up in venezuela in caracas um but my family are both Italian. I haven't lived in Venezuela since 2006 and haven't been since 2014. So I now mostly, my, my parents don't live there anymore either. So it's just very sad that we haven't been back. But yeah, so I'm Venezuelan. I went to law school in Venezuela. So I have a Venezuelan law degree and I'm a Venezuelan qualified lawyer. With an Italian heritage, but now living in England. <laughs> yes, which judging by the weather, you would never have thought that an Italo-Venezuelan would end up settling here, but right. here we are. <laughs> in, in rainy London. Yeah. Well, so today we're going to discuss a few aspects of your work on exceptions and justifications. But first and foremost, your recent article, Military Assistance on Request and General Reasons Against Force, Consent as a Justification for the Use of Force, which delves deeply into an exploration of the relationship between the prohibition on the use of force and consent to the use of force as either being an inherent part of the definition of the prohibition itself or a separate justification for violating the prohibition. And so, as I read this, it involves a fair amount of theory on the nature and operation of exceptions, and you've literally written the book on the subject of exceptions. So I thought that before we dove into the theory, uh, which is necessary to understanding your argument, we actually might start at the end, as it were. Mm -hmm. um, the so what question, which is which you answer at the end of the article, explaining some of the practical and normative uh, reasons why this really very theoretical distinction, conceptual distinction, matters. And I thought that we'll come back to talk more about the importance later in the conversation, but I thought it would be helpful for listeners to understand upfront what's at stake before we dive into the theory itself. Okay, sure. So um, I think the main practical implication of considering consent either a part of the definition of the prohibition of force or whether to con consider it as a defense is the question of there being a prima facie breach or a presumptive breach at the very least of the prohibition of force. So basically what it means is that every time force is used, it will be presumptively wrongful until such time as it has been justified with adequate evidence by the state who is using force. So it puts the burden of demonstrating the legality of that use of force on the state that is actually using that force. Um, and I think that this is important in a decentralized horizontal legal system where there are no centralized judicial institutions or any other centralized body that can have the power to assess every claim about the use of force and its legality. So if other states can see from an express justification that is made publicly what the legal basis of that use of force is, then it helps for other states to determine whether or not they agree with the legality of that um, intervention. So I think that that is the first and the most important practical implication. And it might seem that it's little, 
uh, it might not seem very much, but if you think about the fact that with the UN Security Council authorization, there is some level of justification by the states who, you know, you after all need to seek consent from the Security Council to use force. Right. So you will need to make representations before the council and convince another 14, 15 states to allow you to do so. And with self-defense, we do have a requirement, a procedural requirement in Article 51 to provide justifications and explanations to the Security Council. So you need to notify the council that you have used force in self-defense. With consent, we don't have any of these things. And to me, that just did not seem right, because ultimately it is a use of force. Um, and as I argue in the piece, it is a use of force. It's a presumptive violation of the prohibition of force, and therefore there should be uh, an obligation to justify such uses of force. Right. And as I understand it, there's also this conceptual difference in the sense that if you use the what you call the intrinsic model, if, if the mm -hmm. consent is inherent to the definition of the prohibition itself, we think of the use of force in one way, whereas if it's extrinsic, if you have consent as a separate and distinct justification, we tend to think of the use of force differently. And you use the analogies of rape and battery uh, as two examples of the different uh, intrinsic and extrinsic uses of consent. So maybe we can just talk a little bit about that and how that changes how we think about the nature of the use of force itself. Right. So, I mean, it, it all comes back to the question of what is an exception to a rule. Yeah. So maybe we do need to dive into, yeah. the, into the theory. <laughs> yeah. And so once we understand what is an exception to a rule, we can then see how there are two different ways of thinking about it or thinking about the ways in which the exception and the rule relate to one another. Right. And so there are two broad ways of thinking about exceptions. So you can see them as negative conditions of the rule itself. So basically, they, are, they carve out some situations from the scope of the rule. You could visualize this as a hole in the rule, right? The rule just doesn't cover the area where that situation falls. Right. And this is what I call the intrinsic model, right? So basically, if you, if you take the prohibition of the use of force and you said that consent was intrinsic to the rule, the prohibition of force would prohibit non-consensual force, right? right? This has some proponents in legal theory, the idea that all exceptions are intrinsic to rules. And so one of the greatest proponents um, is, was Glanville Williams, the crimin great criminal lawyer here in Britain. Right. And in his view, this was just required by logic. Right? It was just logical that all exceptions to rules had to be intrinsic to the rule itself. And the way he explains this is by relying on what he calls an old quip. Right. And so it goes as follows. Right? All Germans in Greek are badly to seek all save only for Hermann, and Hermann's a German. Okay. So when he thinks of this, he asks, well, which conclusion is true? Either all Germans are poor in Greek, which means that Hermann, because he's a German, has to be poor in Greek, so he cannot be good in Greek, or Hermann is good at Greek, in which case it is not true that all Germans are poor in Greek. Right. right? So the two conclusions just cannot stand together. And so the only way to overcome this difficulty for him is just to put the exception, except for Hermann, in the first premise. All Germans, except for Hermann, are poor in Greek. Right? Other philosophers after him have also said, look, ultimately, they, bo they both mean the same things. But wherever you put the exception, whether you put it in the rule or you put it as a separate rule, in terms of meaning, you get to the same point. Right. And that's Julius Stone's view, for example. So on their view, every rule would have basically as many holes as exceptions are applicable to it. And there's a question mark as to whether they can have a sort of presumptive hole that applies to any potential exception that is out in the legal system that hasn't yet been applied to it. Right. So they, the, on the intrinsic view, the exception qualifies the scope of the rule. But the other view instead is to view exceptions as self-standing self concepts, 
separate from the rule. And there are a variety of views that have been relied on here. Some that are procedural rely basically on the burden of proof. Uh, it normally, um, it is the claimant that has to prove the claim and defendant has to prove the defense. So wherever you put the burden of proof, if something has to be proven by the defendant, then that is an exception or a defense. Now, other theories think that this is putting the cart before the horse. You have to prove something because it is an exception and it is not an exception because the defendant has to prove it, basically. Right. And so, you know, there is that debate at the procedural level. I'm not entirely sure how helpful that is in international law, given that at least the International Court of Justice rarely assigns burdens. And if we think about the only case where consent to the use of force was brought before the court, DRC Uganda, the parties debated at length who owed the burden of proof. And the court at no point made a decision on that particular point. We can infer where the court placed the burden, but the court doesn't actually say it. Right. So there is, there is instead a, a substantive view. So there is a substantive difference between offenses and defenses or rules and exceptions. And this is the one that I think it's rather convincing. And it, it is the one that has been proposed by Kenneth Campbell and then subsequently developed by many other scholars, including the late John Gardner. Um, and they rely on practical reasoning to explain the difference between offenses and defenses. So, and here's where it gets a bit theoretical. So to understand this. Wait, we haven't gotten theoretical yet. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> we need to understand um, a, a previous point, right? So understand different kinds of first order reasons as, and I will rely here on jo Joseph Rass' definitions. So basically rules are intended to guide behavior. Right, and they guide behavior by providing agents with reasons for or reasons against action. Now, for the purposes of explaining offenses and defenses, all we really need are two types of reasons, conclusive reasons or prima facie reasons. Conclusive reasons are reasons that determine what an agent ought to do, and there are no overriding reasons. So when you have no overriding reasons, then the reason against an action or the reason for an action will be conclusive as to what you have to do. Or they can be prima facie reasons. Right? These are reasons that are overridden by countervailing reasons, and countervailing reasons are themselves facts which count for contradictory action. Right? So countervailing reasons give you reasons to act against the reason against action, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So what Campbell and later Gartner have done is to map out offenses and defenses onto these two different sets of reasons. Right? So real rules give reasons for action, or in the case of prohibitory rules, they give reasons against action, and this can be conclusive, right? So we have a reason not to kill innocent victims, and this can be conclusive. In fact, in most instances, it's a conclusive reason against killing. But these reasons can also operate only on a prima facie level in the sense that they can be overridden by facts that are themselves reason for contradictory action. So here, think about self-defense in the case of killing. An agent's reason not to kill can be defeated when they are the subject of an unjust aggression. So all things considered, an innocent victim will not have a reason not to kill uh, because that reason has been overridden by the situation of self-defense. So on this view, offenses can give prima facie reasons against action, whereas the defenses are the countervailing reasons that count in favor of that action. So this is what they, you know, how they map out mm -hmm. practical reasoning into the definitions of offenses and defenses. And as I was saying earlier, going back to the questions of practical consequences, I think this, this way of understanding offenses and defenses or rules and exceptions brings to light two important things. First, that whenever a rule gives a general reason against action, then we will need a countervailing reason if we want to engage in that specific action. Right. And this is because unless we are able to overcome that prima facie reason against action, then that prima facie reason will, will be conclusive, mm -hmm. right? So what this implies is that whenever an agent does the thing that they have a reason not to do, 
their conduct will be prima facie wrong until they are able to overcome that prima facie reason with a countervailing reason. So the concept of a prima facie wrong here is important and it's important that I qualify this. Different scholars use it differently. It can be understood either in a procedural sense, so what I have been calling a presumptive wrong, right. in the sense that it is wrong until you prove otherwise. But it can also be taken in a more substantive sense, namely as a wrong that exists in the legal order, even though all things considered, the conduct will be permissible. And it is a wrong because although the reason against has been overridden, it hasn't been excluded. So the reason against action continues to kind of hover and operate in the background and as such continues to exert what Gardner calls its um, rational appeal. Now, in either case, whether you take the prima facie wrong to be evidential or to be substantive, you will still need a justification to overcome that reason and to therefore breach the judgment that all things considered the action was permissible. What the prima facie wrong in an evidential sense will not have, I suppose the prima facie wrong in a substantive sense, is what theories call a moral residue or what John Gardner calls you know, the rem moral remainders. And we can talk about those later if you want. I'm not entirely sure how useful they are for international law, but we can nevertheless have a chat about those if you want. So here is where I exemplify with rape and battery. Right. So that this will be a, a concrete example to, to what you're saying. Yes. So rape is usually defined as non-consensual sexual intercourse. Right. So what that crime does is give reasons against non-consensual sexual intercourse. But it doesn't give reasons against sexual intercourse as such. Right. And what that means is that every instance of sexual intercourse is not a prima facie wrong that is in need of justification, right? Whereas on the other hand, battery can be defined and is usually defined in the opposite way. So it is defined as the application of physical violence on another person. And the precise place of consent in this definition is not always clear. Some jurisdictions take the definition of consent out from this offense and so cast defense as consent as a defense. And what this means is that on this definition, on this definition, battery gives a general reason against personal violence. Right. So that every instance of personal violence is a prima facie wrong that needs justification, and then consent can come in to provide that justification. Right. So they're just two different ways of using the same defense to basically guide conduct differently and provide different reasons to agents in their actions. But if I understand you correctly, what this suggests is that one does not necessarily or perhaps should not be applying either an intrinsic or an extrinsic model to all offenses, but that depending on the offense, as you say, like it makes entire sense to us that rape should be defined in such a way that it includes the consent as part of the prohibition because we think of sex itself as being good. It's only non-consensual sex that is bad. Whereas you, if you conceptualize battery with the extrinsic model, you think as personal violence is bad and there should be a rule against personal violence, but there is this separate consent justification in some cases. Yes, that's right. And in fact, there are challenges to these two ways of viewing these two crimes. So there have been arguments made both by radical feminists and also by certain legal philosophers that rape should not contain an element of non-consent in its definition. Right. So the way in which we think about the, the defense and where we put it doesn't have to follow 
either exclusively the intrinsic model or exclusively the extrinsic model. Ultimately, what we want are rules that make sense in a given society at a given time. And how do we know whether they make sense? Well, we just need to understand what the moral situation, the morality of that society, policies of that society, other normative questions as well that are intrinsic in that society. So, so coming back to the use of force. Yeah, we just need to assess rule by rule. Right. And so you apply this lens to the use of force regime and explain that the conventional wisdom or the, the, the prevailing view is that the prohibition on the use of force contains within it the notion of consent. And so somewhat like rape, it's only non-consensual use of force that is prohibited. And you're suggesting that that's wrong and that one should in fact apply an extrinsic uh, model and that consent should be a freestanding separate justification. So let's unpack that. Yes, right. So um, the reason why this is a problem at all, I think, is because this, the UN Charter does not include consent as one of the exceptions to the prohibition of force. It expressly relates it refers to UN Security Council authorization, of course, and it contains a clause about self-defense in Article 51 as well. But it does not include consent. And yet in the practice of states, we see that states invite other states to use force in their territory. Those other states use force in those territories, and nobody claims this to be unlawful when the circumstances are met, the circumstances of consent are met. So we needed to find a way to square right. this circle, as it were. How can we explain that if the Charter on the one hand tried to establish a sort of closed system of the use of force, uh, it doesn't contain an exception of consent, how can we explain then the practice that is happening as it were outside the Charter? And so the drafting of the Charter shows no evidence of consent having been considered at the time that Article 2.4 was being drafted. And so what scholars have tried to do, and it's mostly scholars because states tend not to make these kinds of arguments, um, is to try to find words in Article 2.4 <laughs> where they can basically graft consent to. Right. And so they will refer to, you know, consensual force not being against territorial integrity or political independence, territorial, you know, consent not being against the states, consent not being an in international use of force in international relations, and so on and so forth. So I think all of those views have some deficiencies, and perhaps we can explore them later if we have time, but that's not, you know, I think my argument would stand even if there were no interpretive difficulties with those arguments. But ultimately, what they do is that they give us a rule that says the prohibition of non-consensual force is prohibited. And so if we draw the same analogies as we did with rape, then basically what we have is a rule that gives us a reason against non-consensual force that operates against the background where there is no general reason against force. Right. right. So presumably on the background, just as we said that sexual relations are a good in itself and they're only wrong when they are non-consensual, well, we could draw the same implications from drafting the rule on the prohibition of force as non-consensual force is prohibited. Right. And that to me was counterintuitive. That to me just did not seem right. 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 Now, one way of looking at this is to say, well, but ultimately the prohibition of force is about state sovereignty, right? And state sovereignty is not actually diminished or harmed in any way when you consent to the use of force by another state in your territory. On the contrary, if sovereignty ultimately is about the exclusive exercise of power, over a certain territory, consenting to the use of force in that territory is a manifestation of that sovereignty, right? So you're furthering that sovereignty rather than diminishing the sovereignty. And I think there is some force to that argument. And so if the prohibition of force in international relations was limited to 
the protection of the state sovereignty, then we might have an argument that in fact, perhaps an analogy with the definition of right is fine. Because right. ultimately, if that force occurs with the consent of the territorial state, then there's no reason against using force at all. Right. But to me, the problem comes when we think that actually the prohibition of force is not just about protecting state sovereignty. There is at least another important value or interest that the prohibition of force protects, and that is the maintenance of international peace and security. Right. I mean, the first line of the charter talks about succeeding, saving succeeding generations from the scourge of war. The first line of the Article 1 of the Charter on the purposes of the Charter is the maintenance of international peace and security. The court has referred to this as one of the paramount purposes of the Charter. Article 2 4 makes express reference to the purposes of the Charter. So it is clear to me that Article 2 4 is not just there to protect sovereignty, territorial sovereignty, but it's also there to protect the maintenance of international peace and security. And we know from the practice of the organization that peace and security in their negative sense as the absence of war or the absence of armed conflict is not limited to the existence of interstate war. Right. In fact, the practice of the organization is such that even purely internal conflicts are considered to be a potential breach of the peace. And so they are therefore incompatible and the opposite of the maintenance of international peace and security. And if that is the case, that a purely internal situation is a potential threat to the maintenance of international peace and security, then it follows from a fortiori that a state using force, even if with the consent of the territorial state to intervene in a purely internal situation, that is a threat to international peace and security. And in fact, in all of those situations, either interstate war or intervention in, in an internal conflict, there will be an armed conflict, whether an international or a non-international armed conflict. And that is by definition the opposite of peace. Right. And so if that is the case, I think that the maintenance of international peace and security must count as a general reason against force, which means then that consent is not in itself intrinsic to the prohibition. It cannot be intrinsic to the prohibition, uh, but it has to be instead extrinsic to the prohibition of force. Right. So what other support is there for the argument that consent should be a freestanding justification? Well, to me, it seems states do justify when they use force with consent. They don't always do this, but we would like them to do it every time. And certainly in the last, um, I detail in the article, in the last sort of two decades, out of at least eight instances of intervention with the consent of the territorial state, in only two instances, no justifications were given by anyone involved in those conflicts. In many other cases, justifications were in fact given, and very often, perhaps because they were, um, they, they involved situations which had non-state actors in them. And so there were also um, attempts of justifying with self-defense the use of force in neighboring territories. Letters to the Security Council were sent, including self-defense as a justification and sometimes mentioning also the consent of the territorial state. So th there is evidence that states do justify um, publicly when they use force with the consent of the territorial state. And to me, that is telling that they think that maybe, just maybe, if they don't provide such justifications, that their behavior will be considered to be wrong. Right. Um, and perhaps a presumptive violation of the prohibition of force. Now, of course, you do explore in some detail some of the anticipated objections to the extrinsic model. And, and so maybe we should go through those. And one of them is, is of course, a really important objection, which we, we can spend some time on. But why don't we just sort of walk through those ending with the, the use Kogan's argument? 
Yes. So, well, one uh, there are there are two main objections. One is a textual objection which relies on Article 103 of the Charter, and the other one is the objection that relies on the question of the prohibition of forced peremptory status. So, Article 103 of the Charter, to start with, um, establishes the Charter prevails over ob other obligations of states. These include both conventional and customary obligations, and it has been interpreted as also providing for the priority of the UN Charter over rights of states that arise under other treaties or uh, customary law. And so on this basis, you would say that, well, Article 103 precludes reliance on any rules outside of the UN Charter to justify the use of force, which necessarily means that it would preclude reliance on the customary defenses available in the general law of state responsibility, basically. Now, of course, Article when, when Article 103 was being discussed, they did not have in mind defenses in the law of state responsibility. And we know that the defenses in the law of state responsibility have been relied upon in some instances, or at least in some few instances by states to try to justify the uses of force. So necessity has been invoked occasionally. And the argument has always been made that the charter is a closed system and it doesn't in fact allow reliance on any rules beyond it. And yet, I think at least that um, Article 103 did not intend to exclude reliance on all, all of the defenses. And so one example of this is the DRC Uganda case, where um, Uganda relied on Article 21 on self-defense in order to justify rights derived, so obligations that justify the infringement of obligations derived from the charter. So the obligation to respect DRC's territorial integrity and political independence. And so it seems to me that it doesn't necessarily follow that because Article 103 excludes other rights and obligations uh, when they are in conflict with the obligations within the Charter, that it necessarily excludes the law of state responsibility, including the defenses in the law of state responsibility. Right. So that's one. And the second one is the question of peremptory law. And this is a much more complicated one. Yes. And one that, of course, tends to animate <laughs> quite a bit. Right. So for my argument to be valid, the prohibition of force must not be peremptory as a whole. Right. And the reason for this is that if the prohibition of force is peremptory, then it does not permit derogation. And it doesn't permit derogation either by treaty, by operation of Article 53 and 64 of the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties, and it doesn't permit derogation unilaterally by operation of Article 26 of the ILC Articles on State Responsibility. And to say that you can rely on a defense is to say that you can derogate from the rule unilaterally. Right. So if the prohibition of force is indeed peremptory as a whole, then the argument about defenses, um, the extrinsic model goes away entirely. Right. So basically, just to just to really emphasize and highlight what, yeah. what we're talking about here is a lot of people argue that the prohibition on the use of force in Article 2.4 of the Charter is a so-called use Kogan's norm, that this is a peremptory norm of international law that can never be derogated from. And you're proposing an interpretation of the prohibition on the use of force that sets up a, an independent justification, a defense, which would which can't can't be right if indeed the prohibition on the use of force is a use Kogan's norm. So you are blowing up a uh, piece of conventional wisdom in international law. But you have some really powerful arguments for why you're right. So let's dig into those. I, yeah, I think I think they are powerful. So I think the, the first thing to say is that. The prohibition of force has lots of exceptions. It's not just, unfortunately, Article 51, UN Security Council authorization consent. There are also a few exceptions in the Law of the Sea Convention, for example. 
right? So th there are a host of exceptions to the prohibition of force. And it, if all of these exceptions were to come against the peremptory status of the prohibition, they would all be invalid. And so if the only way to make them valid is to say that the, the prohibition of force has intrinsic in it all of the potential exceptions, then we would end up with a basically like a Swiss cheese type <laughs> right. rule with multiple holes in it. And more problematically than that is that we would end up with a rule that is essentially impossible to work with. Right? And I think it's either James Green or Ulf Lindefag who argued this, who have a paragraph in their article where they provide a full definition of the prohibition of force, minus the sort of trimmings about necessity and proportionality and all that stuff. And it, it's, it's a very long paragraph, right. half a page kind of paragraph. And that's just not the way we use rules, right? We just need rules that are easily identifiable by the addressees of the rules that can be easily interpreted, especially in areas as complicated as this, where some scholars have argued for, you know, what do they call um, bookshelf kind of rules? Like you just, you know, they're easy to, to, to assess and easy to identify immediately. Um, and so if you have to collapse all of the exceptions into the definition of the prohibition of force, then we would have a you know, prohibition of force that prohibited non-defensive, non-consensual, non-security council authorization, non-this, non-the other force. And the question then becomes, well, how many of the requirements of self-defense, self security council authorization or consent do you have to incorporate into this rule as well? So the rule becomes a bit unworkable. Um, so as a result of that, some people have argued actually what we need, what we actually do have is a narrower core of the prohibition of force that is peremptory and the rest of it that isn't. And I identify this with the view that aggression is the core of the prohibition of force. And so that is protected by a peremptory rule, whereas the rest of the prohibition of force, which is part of customary law, is not in fact protected by a peremptory rule and is therefore subject to the availability of exceptions and defenses. Now, since writing this, I have come across an article that actually makes this argument in a much more elegant way and much more coherent way, <laughs> I dare say as well, uh, which is forthcoming in the ICLQ by Katie Johnston, who is a PhD student in Oxford or a DPhil student, as they say there in Oxford. Um, and basically her, her view is that like when states talk about the prohibition of force being peremptory, this is necessarily incompatible with the fact that they accept that this prohibition has lots of potential derogations in the form of exceptions. Right. And so if that is the case, then maybe what's happening is that we have a broad customary rule prohibiting force, and then we have a core of that rule, which is considered to be peremptory. And so basically what we, the rule that is peremptory is that part of the rule that is not subject to exceptions. And that is active aggression. So she doesn't define it as an act of aggression. She says it does, it's not necessary to go that far. You can just simply identify that there exist certain forms of the use of force that are protected by a peremptory rule because they are not subject to exceptions. So she identifies the scope, she calls it the ambulatory definition. She identifies the scope of the peremptory rule by reference to the exceptions that are allowed to the prohibition of force. And I think that that is a much more elegant way of saying what I was trying to say in this article. Um, but, but you do identify aggression, right? And say that I do the, say aggression, yeah. yeah. And, and this, um, you know, I think, maps on nicely to the argument that Adil Haq was making in a previous episode of the podcast, in which he was explaining the relationship between the use of force and self-defense and suggesting that really self-defense itself is not an exception to the prohibition on the use of force. There's really only one exception, that is UN Security Council authorization, and that self-defense 
is permissible in response to an act of aggression. And, it, and that when we looked at the drafting history, we were saying really that the armed attack was thought of as being an act of aggression and that the exception to the exception, if you will, I mean, self-defense is an exception to the, the exception that UN Security Council alone has authority to respond to uses of force is to respond to acts of aggression, which would suggest that acts of aggression were considered to be the subject of a use Kogan's norm, or arguably, I mean, this would support your argument that it is really just prohibition on acts of aggression that are, that is the, the subject of the use Kogan's norm. Yes, that, 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 just, that makes sense. Um, I don't know what to make about the exception to the exception right. thing. Certainly not in terms of the theoretical framework I've mapped out here, but it, it does make intuitive sense if you just think of analogies with domestic systems and how the charter was trying to establish a system of collective security. That's what the state did in primitive societies. It just monopolized the use of force and then allowed its police forces to use force. And then, you know, we still are allowed to use force in self-defense when the police, you know, when it's necessary, presumably if a policeman is not around. Right. <laughs> so in a way, you can, you can think of self-defense in domestic legal systems as an exception to the exception that the state can only use force because we, it's monopolized the, the power. But I mean, I'd, I wouldn't know how an exception to an exception would work in this system. So I might need to work on that further. <laughs> well, yeah, I think that you and Adil should actually collaborate on a blog post that tries to map on your extrinsic model to his exception to the exception framework. And I, I really want to see how that plays out. Okay, challenge accepted. <laughs> we just need Adil's consent. <laughs> <laughs> so I do want to spend a few minutes talking mm -hmm. about your two other earlier articles. But before we get to that, I want to sort of go back to where we started, which is, mm -hmm. so why does any of this matter? Mm -hmm. And it strikes me that, you know, when I read the article, the biggest takeaway for me was that one, I guess there were two. I mean, one is this conceptual idea that just mm -hmm. use of force is wrong. It's mm -hmm. prima facie bad, substantively and presumptive, you know, procedurally, uh, and that applying the extrinsic model really reinforces that or, or mm -hmm. requires us to understand it in those terms, which has some real benefit. Mm -hmm. The other aspect, which I thought was really practically important, mm -hmm. which you lay out in the, in the final paragraph of the article, is this idea that it will now require uh, a much more explicit public justification with evidence of consent. Uh, there's none of this wink, wink, nudge, nudge, the ISI, let us do these drone strikes. Uh, you are going to have to provide evidence and an explicit and public justification uh, of your use of force on the basis of consent, which I think is, practically speaking, really very important. But I can still imagine some policymakers or practically minded scholars going, yeah, but really, I, I mean, why does this really matter? I mean, intrinsic, extrinsic, what does it matter? And I guess the where the rubber might hit the road with that question is, can we conceive of a case in which if we apply the intrinsic model, it would be a consensual use of force and therefore not prohibited? But if we applied the extrinsic model, the consent wouldn't quite be sufficient and we might say the justification fails and therefore this was a use of force that is not justified. Is it possible to conceive it or are we always going to get to the same result that the consent is going to operate, whether intrinsic or extrinsic, in every case, the same way. 
I think as a matter of principle, the answer is no, we'll operate in the same way because ultimately the requirements will be the same. Is there an authority who can consent to the use of force? Have they consented to the use of force and so on? It's just a matter of providing, um, again, public acknowledgement of that and, and some form of explanation. Um, and I think that this is particularly important because while territorial sovereignty might be thought of as an, uh, as an individual interest of individual states, the maintenance of international peace and security is really a collective interest of at least all members of the United Nations. So in a way, whenever force is used, their interest in the maintenance of international peace and security is affected. And all of them can be worse off as a matter of, as a result of the use of force um, in those circumstances, because again, maintenance of international peace and security has been affected and that might affect trade, might affect the movement of people, creates refugees and, and all that stuff. So I don't think that substantively anything changes other than maybe only evidentially right. uh, or presumptively we have a breach of the prohibition of force. And so we just put someone on the spot um, as having to justify their own behavior. Now, when you have to justify your own behavior, it might perhaps be the case that, well, you need them to provide you know, details of that consent. How far in the territory of a state can you go? So we don't have questions like DRC Uganda arising, where if you don't provide clear evidence of what that consent is, there might be questions as to, well, how far into the territory can you go? What parts of the territory are you allowed to use force with consent? What kinds of things you can or cannot do when you have that authorization to use force? Because you know, states might limit the authorization to use force. You might right. just say, well, I'm happy with aerial bombardments, but I'm not happy with boots on the ground. And so if there is a public justification and a public explanation, it is easier for the rest of states and for the United Nations itself to monitor the situation. So it just creates an extra level of constraint. Right on the state using force. Now, will this convince the sort of more pragmatic, realist-minded international, uh, international law scholars? Probably not, but I, I'm doubtful that any legal theory would convince them. <laughs> <laughs> now, I was also struck by this, the part of your article in which you, you note that international law does not seem to pay significant attention or sufficient attention to the shifting of burdens of proof. Which and, and so I think there's a normative argument to be made here that this should matter, yeah. right? I mean, certainly in domestic law, this would be hugely significant, right? I mean, the shifting of the burden of proof is is the, the difference between winning and losing a case. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, adopting the extrinsic model does theoretically shift the burden of mm -hmm. proof, which should be hugely important. Uh, and and it's I think the you know the normative argument can be made here that the ICJ should be paying more attention to the importance of shifting burdens. Yeah, and the DRC and Uganda both argued you know, very strenuously about who should bear the burden of proving both consent and the withdrawal of consent in that case. Um, and what's interesting to me is that, for example, and maybe as a, as a sort of way of segueing to the, the other two articles on self-defense, even though the ILC has said in, our, in the commentary to Article 21 that um, self-defense, the right of self-defense is an intrinsic part of the prohibition of force, such that there's no prima facie violation of the prohibition of force when a state engages in self-defense, it seems that every time there have been claims about the exercise of the right of self-defense before the ICJ, the ICJ has placed the burden of proving the existence of self-defense on the state invoking self-defense. So if you take a procedural understanding of exceptions, it contradicts the conceptual point that the ILC took in its commentary to Article 21 Interesting. Um, on self-defense. Well, that does indeed provide the perfect segue to go. your <laughs> earlier articles, which I have to say I found really important to my own research several years ago. Thank you. And both delve into the correct understanding of Article 21 of the Articles of State Responsibility, 
which of course provide that self-defense is a circumstance precluding wrongfulness. So the one article uh, entitled Self-Defense as a Circumstance Precluding Wrongfulness just delves right into this problem head on, trying to, trying to uh, explain how one should understand this circumstance precluding wrongfulness. And the second one entitled The Use of Force Against Non-State Actors and the Circumstance Precluding Wrongfulness of Self-Defense applies this understanding to the problem of using force against non-state actors within third non-consenting states. And I think, I think it was actually Adil Haq who tweeted about one of them back in the day, something along the lines that reading it was the closest thing to a light bulb going off in his head. <laughs> and I had exactly the same feeling. I will say that when I read the first one on uh, Article 21 and circumstance precluding wrongfulness, it, it, I had that very seldom felt experience of going, <laughs> before I'd even finished the article thinking, oh my God, I have totally misunderstood this issue this entire time. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> but yeah. what I thought was fascinating in re reviewing them again last night after reading your current article, mm -hmm. your thinking has evolved on some aspects, right? So as I understand yes. it, you accepted the intrinsic mm -hmm. definition of the prohibition on the use of force yes. in those articles. And so mm -hmm. you're thinking has evolved in this really interesting way. So I thought it would be really interesting yeah. to talk a little bit about the articles and first yes. of all, explain to everyone why they completely misunderstand Article 21 of the ILC articles. <laughs> yes. Yes. But then also, you know, just talk a little bit about how, you know, this intellectual evolution is really, I think, uh, mm. interesting. So, but maybe we could just begin by you yes. telling everyone why they really don't understand Article 21 of the ILC draft <laughs> sure. articles. Um, this is, will perhaps give some relief to PhD students. Um, the, the first article, the self-defense article, um, understanding article 21 was the first thing I ever wrote of my PhD and it never wow. made it onto my PhD. <laughs> wow. And so, it's yeah. such a good article. Oh, thank you. It never made it onto the PhD just because ultimately it just kind of stood out. It just didn't make sense at the time. And anyway, so that, that never made it there. But basically what I look at is, you know, article, the Articles on State Responsibility have this provision on self-defense, so Article 21. And if I can just grab it just quickly so that we can see what the ILC is talking about. It's a very simple provision. It says the wrongfulness of an act of a state is precluded if the act constitutes a lawful measure of self-defense taken in conformity with the Charter of the United Nations. Now, this provision adds nothing to Article 51 if all we're concerned about is the prohibition of force, because ultimately Article 51, so the right of self-defense, sort of takes care of the violation of Article 2.4. Now, at the time, I was not concerned with the role of Article 51. I just wanted to deal with the role of Article 21. What did this add to what we already knew? And there's a big shift in the way in which the ILC itself approached the circumstance precluding wrongfulness. Oh, sorry, I hate that expression because my tongue gets tied up. Yeah. So the justification or the defense in Article 21. And so initially, Roberto Ago had understood Article 21 to essentially be the right of self-defense. And so it was just an inclusion in the Articles and State Responsibility of the right of self-defense in international law, because in his view, it was a defense. And so it operated as the justification against the violation of um, the prohibition of force. But when Crawford picked up the second reading of the ILC articles, the nature of this provision changed entirely. And it was because of the understanding that when, when a state uses force against another state, even in self-defense, it is engaging, to use uh, an English expression, not only Article 2.4, but a host of potential other rights of the 
state against which it is using force, so the aggressor state. So if he uses force in the territory of the aggressor state, he might be engaging the territorial integrity or territorial sovereignty of that state. It might be engaging the prohibition of non-intervention, political independence. And as we have learned from the Nicaragua and the old platform cases, he can also be engaging violations of obligations of protection of commerce under treaties of amity and friendship, as they were called back then, perhaps BITs today. And so if Article 51 and the right of self-defense is concerned exclusively with the prohibition of force, then we have all of these other legal relations between the two states that remained unaccounted for. Right. And so this is a problem that emerged really in the second half of the 20th century after the United Nations Charter was adopted. Because up until then, states, when they were engaged in war, were in a formal state of war, and that formal state set aside all of the legal relations that bound those two states in times of peace. So if all those legal relations, including questions of territorial sovereignty, political independence, and so on, were set aside, they didn't apply at the time, there was no problem about violating those rights right, right. at all. Whereas after the UN Charter was adopted, states no longer rely on the state of war anymore. Right? And so in the past, if you look at treatises from pre-1945, you have always sort of Oppenheim's peace and Oppenheim's war. Because you know, when you were at peace, you picked up one book. When you were right. at war, you picked up the other book. <laughs> right. Right? We no longer have that. We have this, the single volume of Brownlee's Principles of International Law, right? So, of course, there's a regulation of the armed conflict itself in the form of IHL, but in terms of the relations that states maintain with one another, those remain in place. So the ILC articles explain this in the commentary as states being in armed conflict while formally at peace. And if they are formally at peace, then we need to find a way of explaining why when a state acts in self-defense against aggressor state, there is no violation of that state's territorial sovereignty, its right to non-intervention, there's no violation of potential rights arising under treaties of commerce and so on and so forth. And so these questions are all specifically in the Nicaragua case, but more prominently in the oil platforms case. And in the oil platforms case, it was as a matter of the jurisdiction of the court under the Treaty of Amity. Right. So somehow Iran had to shoehorn a claim about the use of force into a violation of the obligation of free commerce or whatever it was in that case. And so the parties in that case did rely on article well, Article 34, draft Article 34, as it was at the time, and what became Article 21. And it is perhaps no coincidence that it was James Crawford who was counsel for Iran in that case who then picked <laughs> up the, um, the second reading of the ILC articles. So to understand Article 21, what we need to do is sort of identify three different types of legal relations that exist between the states that are engaged in conflict. On the one hand, the legal relation under the prohibition of force, and that is taken care of by Article 51 and the right of self-defense. Then we have this whole big set of legal relations between the two states, including territorial sovereignty, uh, political independence, and the ones that I've already mentioned. And these can be taken care of by Article 21. So if a state is using force in lawful self-defense and violates these rights of the aggressor state, Article 21 can help explain why they are not wrongful. And then there's a third category of legal relations that are explicitly excluded from the scope of Article 21 and include things like, you know, humanitarian law and obligations that are intended to apply in armed conflict and certain basic human rights. You know, the usual sort of certain basic human rights to not explain which ones. Right. So Article 21 sits in the middle. It addresses those two sets of legal relations. So then the second article was a, a, an attempt to apply this understanding of Article 21 to the situation of non-state actors. Because I think in that case, the different legal relations are really brought to the surface in that when a state uses force against a non-state actor, and I will grant for the sake of argument that, that it is lawful to do so, it is using force in self-defense, right? And because it is using force in self-defense and there's technically 
a justification or no violation of Article 2.4. And that sort of takes care of the actual mean, the means, right, the using right. force. But then because the non-state actor is in the territory of a third state, we still have the problem that that use of force affects the territorial sovereignty of that state, the right to non-intervention, and potentially other things. And so how right. do we, you know, that, that's the dilemma, as I say in the article of the use of force in self-defense against non-state actors, that we have these sets of rights of the whole state that we need to explain why. We, it's, we need to find a way of basically saying why they're not violated by um, the state's use of force against the non-state actors. And so I, I tried to apply Article 21 to that situation. And Article 21 does make, um, the commentary to Article 21 does make allowance for the fact that it, it could extend to the violation of rights of third parties in the context of a self-defensive action. And if you interpret the whole state as a third party in the relation between the non-state actor and the, and the state using force in self-defense, then Article 21 could potentially extend that far. Right. Um, so, and to justify those, the violation of those rights. All right. So that's the, the arguments of, of the two articles yeah. in a nutshell. But as I said, as I was rereading re them mm -hmm. yesterday, mm -hmm. it was clear that you were accepting or mm -hmm. employing the intrinsic model, what you now call the intrinsic model. That is yes. that the prohibition on the use of force was really a prohibition on the non-consensual use of force. And That's so right. you have clearly, your thinking on that has evolved. Now, as I understand it, your, mm -hmm. I mean, the, the really substantive nature of your arguments in both of these pieces remain in place. You haven't changed yeah. your mind on those, no. but you have changed your mind on the nature of, of the exception itself. So maybe we can talk a little bit about yes. the evolution of your thinking. Yeah. So I haven't written this. There's only a paragraph in the article on consent about this. But so my concern with those two early articles on self-defense was on, on the circumstance recruiting wrongfulness of self-defense. And I just needed to find a way to kind of you know, set aside the, the question of Article 51 or the right of self-defense against the prohibition of force. And the IOC articles in paragraph one of, of, of the commentary to Article 21 do say, well, when a state uses force in self-defense, it's not even potentially violating the prohibition of force because it is self-defense is a part of the definition of the prohibition. So basically what they're saying is it's, it's, it's an intrinsic exception. So right. again, we have the prohibition of force that prohibits non-defensive force alongside prohibiting non-consensual force. So you prohibit non-defensive, non-consensual right. force. <laughs> um, and so that's what they say. And I just took that as a starting point, right? So after I finished my PhD and I no longer had to worry about having a deadline pressing over me, I started reading more broadly on you know, more theoretical questions on, on exceptions and, and defenses. Also because I, I was planning the book already and the book was gonna cover all of the defenses in the law of state responsibility. And I, and I wanted to start out with a definition of what a defense is. One of my colleagues here in college who is a chemist gave me the best piece of advice ever. He said, one book, one idea. Hmm. So when I was writing that book, the idea was the defenses. I didn't need to define the defenses. <laughs> So I just took the ILC's position for granted that these were separate from the rule, right? But right. The, the problem remained in my mind. And before I even finished the book, um, I convened a workshop <laughs> and I invited a bunch of legal philosophers <laughs> alongside a bunch of international law academics to discuss the question of exceptions, to try to come up with an explanation of how do we define exceptions? How do we define defenses? And how do, how do they relate to the various rules? And so you start seeing in my, in, in my book, the chapter on self-defense in the book, which is a sort of synthesis of the earlier article, 
I start moving away from that view and I say, well, this is compatible with both views. I'm not going to take a position now because I can't basically. Right. And so I didn't really have time to address this in the book, partially because of the advice to just, you know, one book, one idea. Um, second, because I was seven months pregnant and I really needed to finish the book. And third, because I kind of succumbed to the idea that one does not finish books, one abandons books. And so <laughs> I abandoned it with its one idea. And so since then, I've, I've continued thinking about this. And, and the, the thing that got me thinking the most is there's, um, um, I teach criminal law, which is part of the reason why there are so many criminal law sources Randall here. Williams. <laughs> yeah, Randall Williams. And so one of the articles that I was reading about consent and rape uses this vignette as it were, because it's, it's, not, it's not in fact a sort of thought experiment, it's just a vignette to test how the criminal law treats consent in respect of, you know, in the case, uh, rape and um, actual bodily harm rather than battery. And so he calls it l'hôtel de l'information imparfaite, right? And so he says, imagine two hotel rooms, right? One couple enters room one and another couple enters room two. After some time, one person emerges from room one with bruising around their eye. And sometime after that, one person emerges from room two with vaginal bruising or anal bruising. We know very little of what happened in those rooms, which is where we have imperfect information, except that we know that the bruising was caused by the other person in the room. And so he uses this to show how differently uh, the criminal law treats the offenses of rape and actual bodily harm. Because from the standpoint of the criminal law, the events in room one would be enough to satisfy the elements of the offense of actual bodily harm. That would be a wrong. Whereas the events in room two would not be enough because we would still need to prove that the bruising was caused in a non-consensual way because we could, before we could say that there had been a, a wrong there. Hmm. And so he uses this to argue that the criminal law should treat rape differently, should treat it more like actual bodily harm. Now, obviously, this is inapplicable to international law, but it got me thinking about, I don't know, the bruising of war, if right. you will. Uh, so the devastation, the destruction, the lives lost, the harms of right. war, right? And so I thought about, well, what, what if we had a photographer with imperfect memory, la mémoire imparfaite, right? He shows you two photographs that he or she took in Mosul, you know, the Iraqi city, and he took them or she took them this year, 2020. Both photographs show ruins and dust, destroyed buildings, burnt cars, no green spaces, no vegetation, nothing. Without giving you any context, other than to say the photos were taken in the aftermath of an attack, it is hard to imagine any observer who would not conclude that that had been harmful and that right. was wrong. <laughs> Very hard to conclude that. Now, the photographer then might remember, well, the first photograph was taken after an attack by ISIS. And the other one was taken after an attack by the US-led coalition in support of the Iraqi government. Right. So now armed with this knowledge, you might conclude, well, ISIS's actions were definitely wrong. And you might say, well, all things considered, what the US-led coalition did was justified, so we'll tolerate that, we'll be okay with that. But it is hard to conclude that there would have been no harm there or no wrongs, right? Right. And so that must be the case with every use of force. That must be the case, not just with consensual force, but that must also be the case with self-defensive force, that must be the case with UNSC authorized force. It is harmful, full stop. Right. And if it is harmful, then why do we try to say that self-defense is, well, no, it's intrinsic to the prohibition, so the prohibition isn't engaged. The prohibition is engaged, <laughs> and that's fine. Right. It, is, you know, it is an action that you had reason not to do, but it's okay, all things considered, because you were acting in self-defense, we'll say that it was permissible. Right. But at least if you're acting in 
the understanding that you are causing wrongs, that you are causing harms and that you are committing some kind of wrong, then you might be more restrained in doing so. And if this is the case, then it must not be true that self-defense is intrinsic to the prohibition of force. It must be extrinsic as well, right. because ultimately there has been some harm caused by the use of force. And that's why I reconsidered you know, a position that I had taken in a sort of, as a, just as a shelving of a problem that I didn't need to deal with in that earlier work. Right. But then now I think actually, having done this work on consent, I think all of the exceptions to the prohibition of force must be treated in the same way. I don't think there are any good legal, moral, or policy arguments to treat them differently. So. Well, so yeah. there it is. I think that's a good, yeah. a good place to uh, tie a ribbon on this. This is, uh, you know, at the end of the day, use of force is wrong. Prima facie yes. wrong. And you have to justify it explicitly with either consent or self-defense with evidence. So, well, listen, thank you so That's much. Fine. But before mm -hmm. I let you go, I'm going to ask you to recommend to our listeners three readings that you think, whether they relate to this or mm -hmm. to other things, but just something that you've read in the not too distant past that you think is really important. Right. So Katie Johnson's article that I've already mentioned, which is called identifying the use cogent norm in the use at bellum, which I think is a really neat way of explaining how a prohibition of the use of force, which is use cogent, can be compatible with the many exceptions that the prohibition has. And then another article that I, that I find, I always find his work really challenging, is Andrew Dehu, challenging in a good way. Uh, I don't know that I'm pronouncing that properly. He is... How do you spell it? Andre, so with an accent yeah. on the A, De, D-E. Mm -hmm. And then Hoog, H-O-O-G-H. And it's a chapter called The Compelling Law of Use Cogents and Exceptions to Peremptory Norms. To derogate or not to derogate, that is the question. Um, and it is, yes, and it, it's a chapter in a book that I co-edited with Lauren Bartels that came out of that workshop where we invited lots of uh, philosophers and lawyers to discuss exceptions. And it's a fantastic chapter. Um, and then... If anyone is interested in this particular topic, I would highly recommend John Gardner's book, Offenses and Defenses, um, which is a, a compilation of some of his essays. Um, and he has quite a few on justifications and ex excuses that are, I think they are quite central. I, I, I don't agree with everything that he says, but they are quite central to the way in which I've set out, especially in this article, my arguments about exceptions and defenses. All right. Well, that will keep our listeners busy. So yeah. again, uh, Frederica, thank you so much for, for making time for this. This was wonderful. Uh, you know, I think the, the scholarship is great and is going to give us a lot of food for thought. Thank you very much for reading all of it and for the conversation. <laughs> all right. Thank you. All right. Happy Christmas. Bye. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of Jib Jab, the Laws of War podcast. This wraps up the first season of the podcast, but we'll be back in the new year with a new line of exciting guests. And again, if you have any comments, feedback, critiques, or suggestions for future episodes and guests, please do send me an email. My contact info is also on the website. You can find links to the material discussed today on our website at jibjabpodcast.com. And note that there is a page with all the reading recommendations to date which is growing into an impressive and wide-ranging list of material from classics to the eclectic. And if you're enjoying the podcast or are finding it helpful, please do spread the word. Share it on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or mention it in your own blog posts and writing. And do tell your friends, colleagues, 
for students all about it. You can, of course, follow us on Twitter at at Podcast for updates on the coming episodes. This podcast is produced and edited by me, Craig Martin. The opening music is by Dream Machine, used on a Creative Commons license. With that, Happy New Year, and I'll see you in 2021.